0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Warren Letter Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Russell Warren. Um, I have a newsletter called the Warren Letter that I now um, also put into a podcast format. Um, if you're interested in that, you can go to the warrenletter.substack.com. I'm very excited today because we have uh, Mark Rossano from C6 Capital Holdings. He's actually the CEO of the company. Um, he does kind of an alternative investments, energy investments. And he is a a geopolitical uh, expert. He's been discussing the Russia and Ukraine situation probably before 2014. Um, Very, very knowledgeable on the topic. Um, And, and, you know, we're very excited to have him on the show. What I want to say is before I start this podcast, you know, we're, Mark and I are providing analysis. We're not getting political about, you know, who's right in the situation, what we should do. Uh, But we're providing analysis as it relates to um, the geopolitics of the situation and how it affects markets. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of emotions going around about this Russia, Ukraine situation. And so just want to make everyone aware that, you know, we're just going to be providing cold, hard analysis, what we think is going to happen. And it's not uh, we're not endorsing anything. We're not endorsing the West response. We're not endorsing. The Russian invasion at all. And we, I could speak for Mark here, I'm sure that, uh, you know, nobody wants to see even one death. Uh, nobody likes war. But, you know, this is the situation that we're in. And so we have to um, kind of just face reality here. So without any further introduction, Mark, uh, how are you? I'm sure you've been, uh, yeah, been pretty busy lately.
1: Yeah. I I appreciate the introduction. It's uh, and, and again, I've actually had to provide that color on my uh, podcast and some of the other things I write because I don't want anyone to confuse. It's like, I'm just talking strategy. Like we're just looking at, this is where the chess pieces currently are. And then this is what the next logical steps are. So it's, it's a, it's, it's been a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of understanding, you know, what is happening, what are going to be the next big moves. And for those that, that didn't hear the the last podcast, you know, one of the big things that I've been talking about since December 9th, really, was that Russia wasn't going to invade. So the view was for myself that I, I painted two paths, one where they invade, one where they don't and why they wouldn't. And it's, and so far, it, it, I mean, I, it looks like I should have been on Putin's uh, war council because every single issue I saw with their invasion that they would face and they would hit has actually come true. So, you know, it, it's when you look at what Putin and the errors that he's kind of fallen into, I think it's important to look at what kind of advice was he getting and, and the kind of paranoia. And one of the things that, I I try to paint is he kind of fell into what I I call the Hitler trap. And if you just think about Hitler, after he got into uh, France and he was preparing for the battle of Britain, he was getting more paranoid. He was, he was shrinking his inner circle. He was, he didn't want to hear bad news. It was only good news. It was yes, men. And, and it looks like it was something very similar. Nobody was giving him a, a proper update on the state of the military, you know, how things could go. And, and I think that's where we have to go from here as how has the invasion gone? Has it really been to their advantage? Or did Putin paint himself into a lose-lose situation? And kind of what happens from this point when you start looking at sanctions and how sanctions are going to bite not only the U.S., but the but the world, especially on a commodity side and more importantly, a food side?
0: Okay. And so I think the best way to start this is is let's discuss basically from the end where the end game is and then we'll work back into kind of where we are now and so um on the on the previous podcast you laid out this um this idea of this potential quagmire meaning that Russia would be able to move into Ukraine where they are now but now they're facing you know a hostile population they're facing supply line issues fuel issues desertion issues things like that And so what I want to discuss first is what is kind of the end game goal here? Because originally the idea uh, that Western intelligence agencies were putting out was the goal is to install a Ukrainian uh, puppet government. But now it looks like Russia is shifting away from that. And they're basically just want uh, the breakaway regions, the Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, Donbass regions and Crimea, Crimea, um, part of Russia at this point, they want uh, an agreement that Ukraine will not be ever part of NATO or the EU. Um, but it seems like the goalposts are shifting here now. So so what do you think is Russia's goal? What do you think is Ukraine's goal? And how do you think this, this will play out and how, how this will end?
1: You know, Ukraine, The one of the, the things that when you look at the Donbass and Crimea, those were a lot of those areas that broke away were, were historically Russian. So when you look at 2014 and what happened there, you had a, a very weak Ukraine. They had just come out of a civil war. And don't, I don't want to call it a civil war, but an uprising that saw a, ge- a geopolitical shift within the country. You know, this was now the second Russian backed government that was kicked out of Ukraine. So there was a lot of uh breakaway in areas. There wasn't a lot of unity, but things shifted. So when you look at where they are today, one of the things that I I, I had said was gonna be one of their big tactics was going to be a, tact, uh, a tactical retreat, which what Ukraine is going to do is buy time by giving up land. So give up land, you know, you know make a stand and, and cause some chaos, try to hit as much as you can, and then retreat to a stronghold and continue to do that until you use the geography to your benefit. And one of the things that, as you talk about with Russia shifting gears, I don't think they expected a a very united Ukraine because they, whenever the Russian military gets involved from Georgia to Kazakhstan to Syria, it's in the midst of a civil war. It's in the midst of the fog of war instead of them creating the fog of war. And they were coming into Ukraine that was very united outside of those regions. So I don't think, Russia and Putin would accept 2014 borders, because that, that's essentially accepting where we were. And, and to be fair, nobody was really fighting it at this point. Yeah, I mean, not to say that Ukraine was happy to give up these locations, but they also weren't going to mount an invasion to reclaim them back. They were just kind of at a stalemate. So, I think their main goal right now is still to to eliminate the the quote unquote threat, as they named them neo Nazis or whatever uh, whatever propaganda term they're throwing around. And it really is to take Kiev. Now, I don't I don't think they'll look to take the whole country they would look to take the capital, and and I think they're still getting the intelligence that if they take the capital and and a lot of the main main cities that are in the North and the East, that they'll be able to uh, essentially make the country bow to them and and yield to them. The issue that they're gonna find is if they take um, the military, uh, let's just say the high level military components, there'll never be a full-on surrender. There won't be an unconditional surrender. They, they would go into more of a guerrilla tactics that I think would rival what we saw in France in the 40s. And when you look at what they're trying to do and and how Russia's is going to counter that and how they're trying to prepare it is take away the coast. They've already taken away the Sea of Azov, and now they want to take away the Black Sea. So their view is all we need to do is capture the major cities Cut off them to to the ocean, and eventually they'll have to say, "Okay, we're willing to negotiate." And I think that's what they're going to look to do. The problem is that's a lot of resources, that's a lot of time,
0: and there's going to be a lot of counterattacks while that is playing out. This to me sounds so. You know, I, I read history a lot, and that you know, I've. This sounds to me a lot like. Genghis uh, Khan's kind of tactic where he would encircle Chinese cities, wouldn't fight them because they had high walls. He wouldn't go into the cities, but he would just encircle them and basically wait and cut off food supplies, cut off resupply until basically the city starved into submission. And essentially, to me, looking at the map of Ukraine, it seems that is the goal here they're trying to cut off any any kind of resupply they're trying to cut off food i mean they look like russia's cutting off electricity um uh gas and you know heat uh, things like that and, and and food resupply and so um it seems like that is kind of the either the new tactic or the or the tactic that they've been trying for a while um my question is uh Will that work? I mean, will Ukraine ever? Will the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian people ever say, "Okay, we, you know, we'd rather have food and water in a working country again and be under Russia's rule than you know this idea of an independent Ukraine"?
1: You know, as long as they have access to the West, and and I, and I don't mean the West, you know, as as the, the the media will call it, but I mean in terms of Poland, in terms of areas that just border them to the West. Right now, Russia is struggling to to encircle, so they've gotten about you know, let's call it seventy five percent around around a lot of these areas. But there's been very successful counterattacks. A lot of these uh, Ukrainian missions—they're very mobile. They don't have heavy equipment. They're moving on foot, and they have very sophisticated anti-tank uh, and and uh, and mechanized um, uh, counterattacks. And they've been very effective in in taking away um, the, the power of the of the machine, which is diesel. You know, they've been very very good at doing that. And with Belarus, obviously allowing you know to whatever degree they can allow allowing belar uh, you know the, the russia i think is going to have to use belarus to a greater degree to essentially drive due south and to really cut off the um the ukrainian people from poland from you know friendly nations that are feeding in food and and water and and, and obviously military equipment you know the, the problem is which is i i think the miscalculation from from putin is the inherent anger and, and, uh, and that the people have in Eastern Europe and those that used to be satellite nations. Many of them, I, I would, and, if, and at this point I'd say all of them, refuse to ever go back under the Iron Curtain. And they can look at this, and you can sit there and say, well, you know, they won't be bombing cities, they won't be doing anything, but you know, you'll know, you have people disappearing, you'll, you'll have loved ones going away, and, and and there's a lot of this uncertainty of, we'd rather fight this tooth and nail than ever fall back under the rule, because when you think about some of the other, like the Romans, for an example, You know, when you look at at how they went around and they they conquered different areas, they would come in, they would take. Obviously, they would they would go to battle, they would defeat the military. Then they turn around and say, "Look, we're you're now going to be part of the Roman Empire. We are going to protect you. You are going to pay us taxes. We are going to take a percentage of your goods, but everything else you self, you know, you answer to the Roman crown, but." You can you'll know, semi-autonomous and and you'll and then you'll have our protection and, and there was obviously some people were okay with that others weren't where when you look at what the USSR had done that they wanted full submission they wanted full control and and not that autonomous view. And that's where you, and then obviously you talk about gulags and all the other horror stories that we know of through the 50s into the, um, you know, essentially the late 80s until things really started to collapse. And and nobody's willing to do that because the memories are still real. They're still raw. And that's where you're getting this fight. So I really don't think they can get, have a successful campaign, which is where they'll be bogged down because it would also take a significant amount of military force to, to maintain control. And then the question is, are you like, what, what, what is that occupying force going to look like? How many soldiers will have to be committed, you know, then you're going to leave your East wide open to China, not. To say china 's going to march in, but again, thinking strategy you know at, at what point do you have to redirect your your uh, troops to get back to business and let 's be fair, war is expensive. Just you look at the u s and what we spent in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that was Iraq and Afghanistan where we were facing. Obviously, uh, you know a, a populace that knows the area, but you're facing RPGs and AK-47s. You know you weren't facing javelins and stingers and and, and a and a military force that was trained very effectively at that by the uh, NATO forces.
0: Yeah, and so I I, I was listening to Professor Professor Miersheimer. He was talking about this, and he ba- before the invasion happened, he basically said, you know, if we want. Uh, to if, if Russia wants to wreck itself or we want to wreck Russia, we should encourage them to invade because that would essentially bog them down and deplete their resources and their military but um i i 'm looking at this now and i 'm hearing some opinions, and you can let me know what you think on this is that putin won 't give up he really can't both for his own political reasons and for you know geopolitical strategic reasons. So unfortunately, you know, for the Ukrainian people that are caught in this crossfire, that's going to mean uh, ratcheting up of of uh, attacks on civilian populations and basically just doing more to attempt to essentially defeat the will of the Ukrainian people to, to resist. And my my question is, um, at what point is it more humanitarian to say, you know, sit down and say, OK, we won't be a part of NATO you know, agree to some terms that may, the Ukrainian people may not like, but it'll at least will allow peace? Or is this going to be something where it just drags on for years and years and Ukraine will basically end up, uh you know, a failed state in rubble?
1: You know, I, I unfortunately, you know, yet Putin, Putin has moved into a lose-lose situation. And and one of the biggest reasons why I thought he wouldn't uh move in. And it was actually one of the things that the US intelligence and Western intelligence has been saying is that the military isn't in great shape. And and, and I don't mean in, in terms of size, I mean in terms of the actual quality of what it is. And you're seeing you're seeing uh you know, evidence of it where You have tires that are blowing out seals that maintain the pressure gradients of every tire because obviously tires can get shot at. So you have an internal system that continuously feeds air to these tires in case they get shot. You know, they're still going to maintain their airflow. So there's an air compressor system and you're seeing examples of those air uh, compressor systems that are just failing. And you're you're watching this. I guess what was perceived weakness to show actual weakness. Now they have sheer size. They have sheer numbers, which is why eventually Ukraine is going to continue to struggle to to fight off a just massive force. Now I think Ukraine at this point would be very open to not entering nato i think that was an agreement that could have been made behind closed doors prior to an invasion and was maybe even put on the table and and when you look at the the russian entities that that moved from ukraine to be recognized by russia i think they're okay giving up those regions I don't think they'll give up all of the DNR or LNR. They'll give up the pieces that, that, you know, opted to leave and will be recognized. And I think they'd be willing to, quote unquote, redraw the borders to show that those are no longer part of Ukraine. But I, I don't think they'd be willing to give up any of the additional uh, gains that were that were made by the Russian uh, by the Russian invasion on the east. I think they would want to go back to original borders on that. And, and the reason why is just because of the inherent farmland and the uh, you know, they they are asset rich. So those are things that I think is going to be more of a negotiation on how much does Russia want to keep and how much are they willing to give back up because we need to give Putin an off ramp. And I think that's going to be key is what is the off ramp? You know, Ukraine needs an off ramp, which is obviously, as you said, not being rubble and and Ukraine and and Russia needs an off ramp to to show they got something for all of this because right now, internally, he's going to come under a lot of pressure from the oligarchs, from those in power, because, I mean, they're getting hit. I I mean, I, I thought the West was going to unite against Russia if they invaded. If you had told me that that the that Finland and Sweden were going to consider joining NATO and the Finnish have been very good at killing Russians for over uh, you know for over a thousand years and and then you we were going to have uh, Belgium and Germany give up their pseudo neutrality Switzerland come along with locking down but the biggest surprise was Monaco and the oligarchs st- store a ton of wealth in Monaco and I think that was the biggest surprise and that's the one that I think bites the hardest and Putin is going to feel pressure to make sure that uh, he can leave this with without you know let's just say leave this with his head still intact
0: yeah no i uh, I was also surprised by the level of sanctions um, and let's let's actually talk about that because that's something I really wanted to discuss with you mm-hmm. um, you know today the latest news that uh, uh, basically President Biden calls for an end to normal trade relations with Russia. I mean, I went through a podcast yesterday and I listed, you know, all the sanctions that came out. I mean, from everything from, you know, McDonald's leaving, Netflix not being allowed in the country to, you know, more significant sanctions. Uh, The Russian central banks have been sanctioned. Private banks have been sanctioned. Individuals have been sanctioned. Um, You know, I'm not I don't want to I don't want people to mistake this for a moral equivalency. This is just a way for me to relate it in my head it's as if when we invaded iraq the us invaded iraq it's as if you know our 401k's were basically zeroed out overnight our ability to do any kind of business with the outside world was zeroed out overnight i mean these are very very significant sanctions do you think i mean obviously putin's angry about this but do you think this is considered uh, an economic declaration of war and will there be repercussions uh, to the west for putting these sanctions
1: I, I think it's a very important point, and I think we have to take lessons we learned from World War One and World War Two. Uh, and if you look at World War One, you know the view was we had to punish the not just the German government but the German people. And I think it's very important to designate who is the end target. Is it the government or is it the people? And I think right now it's, it's good to do all of them because you, right now you, you want those that to rise up. You want to create discord within the area and force some of this to, to let, let's just say, force their way of life to change to such a point that they demand a, um, a proclamation from Russia, from Putin and the government that they're going to find a way out but i think we have to make it clear that the moment putin leaves and, and and i don't think we can ever take real sanctions off of the government to a to a, a degree you know not taking them off the oligarchs and putin But we have to make it clear that the moment you leave, like Russia leaves, some of these sanctions get taken away. You know, there's no reason why some guy who is, is working at like the manager of McDonald's or some guy who is, is running his small, his small shop in a city that can't get a loan. Why are we penalizing him long-term? And I think we have to make it clear that the moment this changes, a lot of those things are going to go away. Because we, if we stay and we continue to press the locals, that'll create resentment. That'll create anger. That'll create unity, and that's the last thing we want. We don't want people to look at us uh, as as the the uh, the you know the problem, if you will. And because look at what what Hitler did. And I, again, I'm, I'm just going back to that. It's he used the anger that was there from what happened post World War one, how hyperinflation was created, how, you know, you were buying bread by by the, the weight of your Deutschmarks in a wagon, not the actual price of the bread. You know, we don't want that to get to get to these extremes because you will get rid of Putin, quote unquote, and then get something much worse. So I think we have to make it clear of, look, this is your off-ramp. If you do this, this, and this, we will raise these sanctions. We'll make sure that everybody is made whole. We'll we'll make sure that the people are taken care of. You, you're a monster. You're going to continue to be sanctioned. Don't try to leave uh, Russia because we're going to view you as war criminal, whatever. But the people themselves will have a certain normal way of life again because we need to avoid the errors that we've made in the past.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I could see it. I, I I have some friends who, you know, go on Russian forums and stuff. And, and, um, as of now, it seems, you know, this is very anecdotal, but it seems the, uh, the blame for what's going on is on the West and uh, people see the West as hypocritical. And so I think you're right. I think in terms of us strategic policy, it's very important that we, um, communicate clearly that, you know, the sanctions being placed on Russia or on the government or or, or will be lifted as soon as this is over because, um, you know, nationalism is very powerful and um, especially in Russia. And so if, if, if the average Russian begins to blame the West for their problems instead of their government, that could re- lead to some really, really bad stuff as we've seen um, throughout history. And so... Um, what else, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is, so a lot of these private companies that are in Russia that said, you know, for obviously for PR purposes said that they're not going to do business with Russia. They're pulling out of Russia, McDonald's, Netflix, um, a bunch of different banks, you know, I don't, am not going to go through the whole list, but, um, Putin came out today and said that because they left that they're, those, uh, companies can be nationalized. And so what do you what do you think about that? I mean, that means the companies would have to basically zero out these assets on their balance sheet. I mean, how would that affect earnings? What do you what do you think about that?
1: I, I think that, you know, that that's a one time hit. And, and while it'll be sizable, it, it's, you know, if you look at just the size of the book, of and how much revenue is generated in the country versus outside the country you know it's not going to be a, a huge knock when you start looking at some of the obviously it's going to it's going to vary depending on on size and what their uh, what their footprint is. But for the most part, a lot of the ones that are are more recent after he made these comments, it's unlikely to have a material and lasting impact. And at the same time, it's also he's going back to the trap that we saw with the USSR, with what what we've seen in Venezuela and what we've seen in other uh, communist regimes where just because you nationalize it doesn't mean you know how to run it. And and I think that that he's also going down the like uh, going the wrong way, and depending on the forum you're in, it, it's which this is where it gets it gets convoluted with psyops and other types of propaganda. There's there's a mixture, and I always talk about Russia-Ukraine, where there's the Ukrainian side, the Russian side, and then the truth somewhere in the middle. Because each side is going to use propaganda that's and and the Ukraine has been very, very good at capturing the narrative, capturing the and let's be fair, they have a decent amount of, of fodder for to, to, to feed to the people, given what is happening there. But they're very good at at making sure that's encapsulated and um, and made uh, made known where on the Russian front, they have, they've turned internal on their propaganda. And, and I think that's where there's a struggle of, well, what do the people really know? And there's three different types of people in Russia. The ones that have their heads in the sand and don't believe any of this is real. The people that think this is horrendous and they need to uh, stop immediately. And then the other that think the Ukraine is a legitimate threat. And those, you fall into one of th- those three categories. Not, not, not like a foot in one and the other. You're it's one or the other. And I think the biggest issue is there's more in one and two. And when you look at number two, and, and that's the one that is, you know, people are against the war. It is illegal to protest, and you have people that are protesting. You have people that are going out saying this is wrong, and they're getting thrown in jail. And let's to be let's be very clear a russian jail is very different than the jails we think of here and and just think about what you would what you would consider jail in the us and make it that much worse in russia so they're doing it for for risk of life and limb and their families and, and so in order to do that there has to be enough anger and enough unity to feel comfortable to a degree to go out and and protest something like this So I think some of this is is a bit of a a head fake with what Putin is doing. I think he knows that he can't nationalize these long term. I I think it's, again, a a threat that's being used to make sure that it's like, well, if you do this, I'm just going to nationalize it and then you'll never get back in. And he knows he can't do that, because even though they're a dictator is a dictator and, and someone like himself wants to stay in power, you still need the people to stay in power to to a point. And, and if you push them to a brink, they'll snap and they'll come right at right after you. So he needs to walk that line. And, and he's very good as as the next KGB head of the KGB at espionage, subterfuge, and propaganda. So I, I think he would be quick to reverse that once all of this um, stops and it's just one of those you know tit for tat type things the bigger problem and i think the bigger one that is is to talk about he's even sanctioning friends and and friends as in kazakhstan as in as in belarus you know all of a sudden they've turned around and they're they're stopping the export of grains to, to some of these nations that are deemed friendly to russia because when russia went to them and said we need military support equipment personnel all of these countries respectfully declined. They have not sanctioned Russia. They have not condemned Russian actions, but they have refused to uh, provide support for it Obviously, Belarus is supporting the war effort from the use of their land, but let 's be honest, do they have much choice but they but Minsk has refused so far to to commit troops and, and military equipment to the cause. Kazakhstan has as well uh, you know the um, Armenia has as well Azerbaijan signed a new agreement with them prior to uh, two days before the invasion. So right now they haven't sanctioned Azerbaijan. And I think they're doing that to show, well, if you play ball with us, you'll, you'll be able to eat. And that's when you look at India and China and India and China are in a tough spot because India needs the U S. They're, 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 uh, the, they're part of the quad. So they need the U S. But at the same time, they need a lot of things from Russia. So I expect India to stay as neutral as humanly possible. Without really annoying the West. I mean, they'll do things that we don't want and, and they'll reject our push to condemn and to sanction because like right now they're looking to use ruble to uh, to come up with, um, uh, sorry, rupee to come up with some sort of uh, exchange. Uh, they want to they want a free floating exchange rate to protect them. I'm sorry, a fixed exchange rate to protect themselves. But they're looking to continue to do trade. And China has a massive shortfall on food. And I'm talking massive. And if you're Xi and you want to be named you know, president forever in November, you need to make sure your people are fat and happy and not hungry. Because the biggest issue he could find himself in is to have people that are are fed up and starving so they've opened up the wheat trade and the and they pulled a ton of corn from from the ukraine last year and they have to replace that and and that's going to become a big like food politics and that's what i think russia is going to use to kind of force the hand of some people especially in central uh in central asia and uh, southeast asia
0: okay so basically what you're saying is that Russia is attempting to cut off um, food exports uh, or or has cut off food exports to certain countries in Eurasia and is going to use that to kind of make you know, for lack of a better word, make them kneel to him and agree to do things for him or with him in order to get access to food again, basically. Correct. He's using that as, as a means of persuasion, if you will. Okay. Okay. And, So you mentioned uh, Xi. I wanted to talk to you about Xi. I saw an article today. It said, um, uh, you know, it was obviously like a very, uh, I I would call it maybe a neoconservative article, but it basically said that um, Xi and China and other countries are watching all this go on and they're seeing how hard we're sanctioning Russia and basically that the theory is that Xi is scared of being sanctioned himself. China is scared of being sanctioned. And so they're going to, you know, whisper in Russia's ear that they need to stop this, this, this violence. Now I've heard opposing theories that this is going to, you know, de-dollarize the world and push and push for a a, a less global hegemonic trade system because of these sanctions. But what do you think about the idea that China might be scared of sanctions? So they're going to, you know, step in to try and broker a peace agreement or something.
1: I think that it would be in in their best interest because they they have that food they have a food issue they have a security issue that they're concerned about. So China wants this to end quicker, I think, than what the market would would believe because again, Xi has an agenda, and this is getting in the way of his agenda you know, the last thing he wanted was a unified West because it makes things much harder when you're looking at trying to do different trade deals, uh, trying to get, uh, you know, the the upper hand on a relationship, which is some things China has tried on uh, the EU versus the US. Now, when you look at what what happens going forward, I I think they'll whisper in his ear in a way of, look, you should probably try to come to some sort of an agreement, because at the same time, they don't want separatists within their country to get ideas. You know, there's a lot of anger in Xinjiang. There's a lot of anger in Guangdong that still exists. So there's also, you know, you look at Hong Kong and you don't want anyone to get ideas again. And so there's a little bit of a hesitation of, you know, we we, don't want to show that this can work. And in terms of the de-dollarization, you know, I always think that's a that's funny when you look at the different backdrops, because you don't go and replace U.S. dollar overnight. You look at U.S. trade, which is over eighty uh, percent valued in dollars. It's the most stable, and it's not even that that it's the dollar itself. It's also debt, and I think people forget that since twenty fourteen the emerging markets and china has have massively increased their issuance of dollar denominated debt so you don't just take you know put this dollar denominated debt on and then say ah oh, yeah well, you know what we don't want the dollar anymore no that's that's not how this works it it gets very ingrained in the system it be, it provides a certain amount of comfort i think you'll get more of a basket approach as you're seeing now with uh with more euro more yen becoming part of the the overall uh federal reserve basket not uh, not i'm sorry the central bank baskets around the world but in terms of dollar homogeneity, you know, you're not getting rid of that and and i think it'll it'll slowly you know dwindle to a point But as I said, I did a whole show on U.S. dollar dynamics that we're going to we're going to survive this this crisis. You know, COVID wasn't going to be the end of the dollar. You know, and I think there's going to be some sort of balancing act in terms of what those look like. But the other piece to China and, and it comes back to dollar denominated debt China has a debt problem, and, and I know people love to say, "Oh, don't worry about it. It's a, you know, it, it, they have a debt problem." But it's internal. It's not. It's global. And then when people think it's it, they only have an internal debt problem, they ignore the amount of exposure they have around the world, the amount of uh, in, they've invested in the Belt and Road Initiative, the amount they've invested in dollar-denominated debt, the amount they've invested in U.S. and Canadian real estate, so you would be looking at a very significant impact. So they are looking at these sanctions and being like, wow, they're uniting quickly and they're they're shutting things down fast. Like this could be damaging because the PBOC has way more FX reserves in other nations where Russia had them in other nations. And I have a chart I can show you on where they had their their uh, their reserves held. China has that much more because they do business everywhere, especially the U.S. The U.S. is their largest trade partner. So there's a lot of yuan, there's a lot of of assets that are held at the Federal Reserve in the name of the PBOC that if anything went south quickly, they would lose that money and their their situation would turn quickly. So there's a certain amount of, I need to walk this line and see how this plays out. Out. but i do think the dollar exists for for i think longer than the anti dollar community would like well,
0: that's that's interesting okay yeah so I, I you know there's obviously a lot of viewpoints on that um and you know i i kind of want to tie this back you know not to say but what about me i want to tie this back now to most of my listeners are 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 from the us and involved in, in you know us markets and things like that and so um I want to just discuss with you how how do you think this whole situation affects u s markets I mean we've already seen oil prices hit hundred twenty five dollars a barrel um, record high prices for for food ammonia wheat uh, sugar things like that um, what do you see as the as the implications of uh, of of this on you know the equities markets and commodities markets
1: yeah I think you're gonna to continue to see a significant amount of volatility.
0: Um, and, and I think the volatility provi- uh, opens
1: up opportunity because you'll be able to get into things at, at at strong prices. But when you look at the longer term, the Fed is stuck and we're gonna see Fed uh, rates going up. You know, We're at full employment, we have inflation going nuts, you're gonna have the Fed unable to yield. So, I, I, I said from the beginning it was never going to be 50 basis points, but I think you're going to see a very consistent 25 basis points back to back to back because they need to get in front of rates, because they can't lose control of rates, and they can't face a wage spiral. And we're staring down the barrel of a gun when you're talking wage spirals. And we saw it in the 70s, and Volcker did a lot to, to kind of get that, that confidence back, and they can't risk losing it. So I think there's a lot of pressure on equity markets right now. You have a logistical nightmare that continues to unfold between not only just COVID that we never really recovered from from a logistics supply chain side, but now Russia-Ukraine, which is the most basic rare, uh, raw materials that we need that are going to be in massive shortfall. So you're going to have a, a huge margin hit. You're going to face rising rates, and you're going to face a I think pressure on the equity market that's going to continue. Uh, I think there's a lot of value right now that remains in like gold miners and fertilizer companies. Cause I don't think fertilizer companies, obviously there's going to be a huge shortfall based on what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, but that's also going to put uh, prices on natural gas higher, which is going to cause shut- uh, you know, uh, run cuts and either full shortages, uh, shutdowns and shortages in Europe, which is going to be beneficial for the U.S. fertilizer market. So I, you know, I think that you can be specific on where you play, but holistically speaking, rates are going up. Uh, I think bonds are going to be under pressure. Be, and, and I think the only dovish thing that can come out of the Fed right now would be because they had talked about tightening their balance sheet and and actually selling. I think they'll soften it up a bit, and they'll say that they're just going to let things expire right now and roll off. They're not going to look to actively sell, but we will get that rate hike. And I think there's some view in the market that they're going to skip it because of Russia, Ukraine. And I don't think they have that luxury. And that's going to put downside risk uh, to the equity market in general.
0: Okay. And now, you know, my question is, you know, if inflation came out yesterday at 7.9%, I mean, is a, is a 25 basis point raise going to do much? I mean, will it do anything? I mean, that seems, you know, we've had, you know, especially if you measure inflation the way it was measured when Volcker was the Fed chair, um, you know, he was at 18% with this, almost this level of inflation. So, I mean, is a 25 basis point going to really be able to do anything again? It's a great question, and, and and the short answer is no. Uh, the
1: long answer is they want to show that they have they have an, uh a roadmap, and I think they're going to be very adamant about the roadmap, and and they're going to try to play that up. And the the biggest issue is, especially when you talk about inflation, the thing that people don't appreciate is the Ukraine invasion happened February twenty fourth. You know, we didn't see this like the the inflation numbers that came out were for February, and we really didn't see the, the 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 meat of the pain when you're looking at oil, gasoline, diesel, and and grains until the very very end of February. But it's really going to be captured in March. So I think they're going to have to get in front of what they know is coming in March. And it's going to be a matter of, look, we promised a 25 basis point hike. We don't want to spook the market with something bigger. So we'll do 25, but... I think the the wording is going to be very clear that they're going to get more aggressive if inflation continues on this path they're going to try to play up as much as possible as you know we we understand we have tools they're going to you know do their song and dance, but I think they're going to get more aggressive on the rate side, and then the dovish offset will be, but we're not going to tighten our balance sheet we're going to let some of these bonds roll off some of the some of the debt roll off to try. To soften that blow, and that's how they're going to try to walk the line between being too haw- too hawkish and too dovish. But uh, to your point on where inflation is and what Volcker has been. They need to get in front of this quickly, and I think they're starting to get that message, that message. That they've been that they've been losing for a very long time. As as you know, oh, it's transitory. It's transitory. It's transitory. No, it's not. It was never transitory. You could see that there's too much money in the system, globally speaking, for this to be anything but not transitory. So I think that they're they're, they're more anxious than they let on, especially when you break it down between flexible and sticky inflation because sticky inflation is what they care about the most. And and, and for anybody who's filled up their, their car from week to week, you can understand that that's flexible inflation because those those numbers are gonna dance. But sticky is inflation is what do you pay on health insurance? What do you pay on, on your mortgage, on your rent? Those are things that are gonna bite and they're not going away too quickly. And the same can be said on food. That's something that isn't going to go away too quickly, especially because of obviously with the shortages, but also diesel prices will be stickier than they like, and that's going to put more pressure. So I think they start with a 25, and you could see an acceleration after that, but they're going to try to do everything they can to, to, to provide that faith. But I think that it will be on the table to see a 50 basis point or higher rate, uh, rate hike at the next meeting after March.
0: Oh, really? Okay. 50 points Okay. Wow. I think, I think if that happened, you're going to see a, 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 a plunge in equities. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I don't think that's priced in.
1: No, but they're going to let it settle.
0: They're they're going to show the
1: 25 basis points this time in in this meeting in March. They're going to let the market understand that they're very aggressive, like quote unquote. They'll get aggressive. They'll do whatever. And if they continue to see wages, uh, you know, they continue to see inflation at this rate, I think they they would start to to walk up the idea that a 50 basis point hike is on the table for April and and, or May. And, And I think that would that would start to to create some some of that cooling and i think that would put pressure on the equity markets like one of the things i'm the, i'm short now and and i think is something that is going to be uh, under pressure is emerging markets cuz we talk so much about the us but There's a lot of issues that are going to hit at the emerging market level, and they're beholden to the 10-year, you know, the U.S. 10-year that they price off of for debt. They're beholden to the dollar that is strengthened. You know, when you look at the subsidies that they give their people for food and fuel, how expensive are those subsidies right now? Can they maintain those subsidies? And, and the short answer is no, because in, the, in 2020 and 2021, every country, every central bank was stimulating. You had fiscal stimulus. You had monetary stimulus. Now you're going to have a fiscal drag. And you should be stimulating. You should be maintaining your subsidies, but you're not going to be able to, which is going back to India and China, which they need to try to manage their inflation And the only way they can do that in any degree because they're still going to get hit hard is by playing ball with Russia and buying some of these products at a huge discount because the discount is really good for their people. So and then at the same time, the U.S. is going to look at this and say, well, if it's good for their people, and we buy most of our products from India and China and you know knock-ons, but most of them are originating from there, if their inflation is under control, that'll help keep our inflation a bit more uh, moderate, because what do we do but import inflation? So there's that continuous knock-on effect that we've seen, which is why there's such concern. And I think that you're going to see some of this walk back where they 're going to come out the fed will come out with a twenty five basis point hike, talk the potential of a fifty or something more aggressive in a in a shorter time frame. But, you know, it, at the end of the day, we, we're at a point where we're going to see uh, uh, demand destruction. You know, it's start. It's already starting in the U.S. It's already accelerating the emerging markets. And I think that's going to, you know, cool some of this as well on some of the pricing that we've seen on some of the underlying commodities.
0: And when you say demand destruction, are, are you referring to people, what, driving less and using less oil and gas or heating their homes less? I mean – Um, where, where do you see the demand?
1: I I think it's on the gasoline front, and again, it's going to be more driven by the emerging market world Uh, and then the U.S. Well, I mean, we'll see some dip, just because when you go and you fill up at 4.59 a gallon, when you know the week before, ten days before, you were at 3.50, you know that bites really hard. And and it, but it's not going to be something where you're going to you know park the car and not drive for a week. It's just you know, are you going to drive to to Disney World or are you going to fly to Disney World? Like, is is a vacation now off the table because you can't afford it, which just means that instead of getting a bigger bump in the summer months or summer driving season, it's just more flatlined. It's the bigger bite is going to be in the emerging markets, but the diesel shortfall is real, and there's no easy way to fix that. So even though gasoline could come down, the, the diesel price is going to continue to hit on the logistics side, and is going to keep prices elevated. So even as gasoline moderates, I don't think you'll get the same moderation in diesel, keeping some of that pain or you know a foot on the neck of the uh, of the consumer, if you will.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting when you say the foot on the neck. I I, I have an article here, and it said. Americans uh, will sacrifice more to help Ukraine than most did for our our own wars. And so, um, you know, it sounds like uh, the average person in the U.S. is going to feel this more in their pocketbook um, than they would, you know, they did during Iraq and Afghanistan, even probably during Vietnam. I mean, what do you think?
1: Well, Vietnam was an interesting one because that's where you started to see price controls. You know, there was a massive steel shortage, which is actually why the Tappan Zee Bridge was built in wood and not steel back when it was initially uh, constructed. It's We're going to see a broad issue because when you look at Vietnam, you weren't hitting a huge uh, a, a huge bread basket, where when you look at Russia and, and Ukraine, I mean, Ukraine was is known as the bread basket of Europe. I mean, you're talking about very important things that are going to bite very hard. And at the same time, we also <laughs> have never stimulated to the point that we have on an M1, M2 level when you look at money supply. So there's also more just liquidity that is sloshing around that could get caught up in a lot of this. So I think that the the pain is going to be very different but at the same time very much the same and that's why I talk so much about wage spirals because that was what started to happen in the 70s and they're looking to get in front of wage spirals I mean we're well beyond natural unemployment rates you know now you have this labor tightness you have these issues that are cropping up and they need to try to get in front of. But at the same time, countries are so beholden to us now on the 10-year, on the U.S. dollar-denominated debt that they weren't at the same time in the 70s. You know, when you look at the 98 uh, Asian currency crisis, that was kind of like a big reset. But then the dollar was under pressure and fairly cheap from 08 to pretty much straight through 14 with some some movements up and down, obviously. But, you know, that's why when you look at 2014 and how cheap the dollar was in relation to other currencies, you had guys willing to go out and buy guys. I mean, companies and and governments coming out and trying to tap all of this excess liquidity that was cheap. You know, there was negative rates. You know, so everybody was looking. It's like, okay, well, I can buy German debt at negative one percent or I can buy, you know, Indonesia at plus nine percent. It's like, well, I like Indonesia. They have some growth. It's dollar denominated, so I don't have as much currency risk. Sure, I'll buy that debt. And 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 now you're seeing this paper, uh, you know, increasing. And now you have Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia. You know, Indonesia is one of the biggest buyers of of of, uh, of Ukrainian uh, grain. You know, how are they going to replace it, and at what cost? What price are they going to pay? And how much of it can the government cover? Without you know, essentially just slapping their their locals. With this huge bill, and, and I think that's going to be the, the line they have to walk, which is why the global market is going to be in, in trouble, and that's where you're going to see a lot of that demand destruction, not just on the oil side, but also you know, the replacement of foods, you know going down the quality scale from like soybeans to, to rice, or something cheaper to try to insulate from, uh, from the underlying pain on, the, uh, on everyone's pocketbook.
0: Do you think there could be a food shortage in the United States?
1: You know, we feed ourselves. So realistically, there can never, and I say that loosely, because you can just look at the Dust Bowl, you know, but we can never really have a shortfall because we feed ourselves and then we export excess. The problem is, if we don't have as much excess, the world suffers, so as as our excess goes down, you have Latin America, which has faced a huge issue in terms of availability of food, in terms of availability of of fertilizers, and they've been facing massive droughts. So Latin America has seen their yield cut. You know, Ukraine obviously isn't exporting this year, and is the planting season is, is is the end of this month, and we know they're not planting. You know, Putin could could turn around and say, oh. Uh, my bad guys, I, I got lost. This isn't where I parked my car. I'm I'm going to go home now. Okay, well, how are the fields? You know, if you if you're a farmer coming back from Poland, and your home is destroyed, are you worried about about soybeans? You know, did you buy seed? Do you do you have enough fertilizer? Can you even plant in, in half the thing that might have been ripped up? Because you have all of these these mechanisms that have gotten stuck in the mud. So you essentially lost this year. So there's really no easy fix. And, and as the world gets shorter, shorter, the U.S. will see our prices go up. But realistically, we can still feed ourselves. But it's the, it's the other nations. It's the Middle East. It's the ASCN nations. It, those are the ones that are net short that are gonna get, that are going to get hit the hardest with what is happening right now.
0: Yeah, no, and that makes sense and that kind of goes with your uh short uh EM uh short emerging markets uh kind of play. Um do you have are you doing anything else, any other plays? Are you long anything or are you short?
1: You know, the I, I've been I've been very aggressive in the fertilizer space and in the uh in the grain space, I, I think there's there's going to continue to be a lot of volatility, but I think that fertilizers are going to be a net win, uh, especially when you look at potash. You know, there, there was a lot of uh, a lot of comments. Uh, K and S came out and said that look even if this even if they find peace tomorrow there's been so much damage to rail to road to airports that you know the potash trade isn't going to get back to normal for 2 to 3 years you know you look at you look at mining you look at the shortfalls that we have and and just the pricing we see in nickel and other you know, there's a lot of opportunity for these miners at this point in time. So I've been I, I I'm still strong. I'm still long in, in um in in FERTs. I'm I'm nimble, you know, I you can't be too big. I, I'm not if something goes up 10% i'm selling some with the idea that you know the next day you know putin is going to say we're close to a peace deal and all of a sudden that's going to go down 15% knowing that there is no peace deal and then you buy down 15% because then ukraine says oh it wasn't it, it wasn't a friendly conversation and there's still no peace and then all of a sudden that that stocks going to go up another 10% so again it's just it's just playing the volatility and making sure that you're not you're not too expensive exposed, long or short, because there's going to be a lot of risk. But I think gold, I think gold miners, I think miners in general, in general, like the XME is going to be one that's going to benefit, especially on the coal side, given the amount of Russian coal that is not going to make it to market uh, and is going to struggle and just where prices are right now. You know, right now, China still has their sanctions against Australia uh, on the on the uh, on the coal side. So where are they going to source the additional? A lot of that did come from Russia. You know, can they get more? Are they over overtaxed? So, again, like I think there's a lot of opportunities to the long side on the uh, on the raw uh, raw raw material side.
0: Yeah. and And so. Do you think those plays do you still think those plays are 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 going to work going forward, or are they kind of uh you know if if you're not in them now, you miss the boat and obviously you know we're not giving investment advice we're just talking about yeah. your personal strategy
1: I think that there's another twenty to thirty percent i I think that there is a lot of um a lot of upside still to remain because everybody is is kind of hesitant to believe it as much. You know, I don't think there's a true appreciation on where prices are. I think rice is still cheap in in regards to everything else. I think some of the others, like wheat, has already kind of priced things in. I think rice is in a good spot where that's something that that is going to see a lot of appreciation. Uh, and then uh, just on the fertilizer side, I think that'll be strong. And then same on the um, on some of the bigger miners. Yeah, you know, but then there's ones that like Archer Daniels, uh, Bungie. Those are ones that I, I've been in. I've been, I've been cutting. I think those have kind of had a decent run. I'm not looking to add here. I, I would like them on pullbacks. Uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure on on uh, on refiners, and when you look at just crack spreads in terms of the cost of of of, of oil and what they're going to be able to sell their product for. So I think that when you look at pet chems, especially plastics and and uh, and other, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot of problems, especially when you if you think about a global slowdown. You know, typically plastics is pretty closely tied to global growth so i think a lot of those have had their run i'd be looking to go the other way and and that's that's just a way to play some specific sectors otherwise you could just outright play you know the the s&p 500 which has had had a very healthy run and i think when people look at it and say oh well we've already pulled back 15 you know 10 15% It's like, well, zoom out and look at where we were in 2020 and look at where we are right now and just consider that we're in a rate rising cycle, not just in the U.S., but globally. There's a global conflict that is currently escalating with no real end in sight, and we have a global food shortage that is going to be worse than what we saw in 2011, and we can all remember the Arab Spring. So. I, I just, I don't get the rah-rah, the, the like, you know, buy the dip, I, but again, you've trained people for how many years to buy the dip, and, they, and it's worked. Let's be fair. If you bought the dip, you crushed it. So how do you get people to say, maybe I shouldn't buy this dip, and, and that takes
0: time? Yeah, yeah. In terms of the buy the dip, I mean, it's going to have to be, uh, or to erase the uh, reflexivity or reactions of people to just always buy the dip, it's going to take just like, you know, soul crushing punishment, meaning they buy the dip, it goes up a little bit, then it crashes back lower than it was. They rebuy the dip and it goes down again. That's, that's basically until those, uh, you know, people who are just reflexively buying the dip are basically just, you know, uh, pulled through the ringer. Um, I think that that reflex is going to be there and you're going to get, um, little bounces on each, on each dip, But, But I think the fact that we haven't rebounded yet and we are continuing to kind of trade in this range and, you know, four or five days in a row negative, I think that will that will uh, that will hurt some people. And people will start to the morale start to get crushed with some of these people, especially the the traders who just got into the game, uh, you know, during the pandemic. And they've only known, you know, you know, uh, you know, insane monetary policy, crazy amounts of uh, QE, crazy amounts of money printing. Um, I think those people who have got in and and made money in the markets in the last two years are are going to be in for a rude awakening. And so, um, yeah, I agree with you there. And the last thing I want to discuss with you, Mark, I know you're a busy guy before we let you go, is um, cyber attacks. Uh, There's been a lot of talk about Russians' capability to cyber attack the U.S., The amount of sanctions that we've placed on them, I'm assuming uh, they will have to hit us back, at least in some way. Um, What do you think about the possibility of Russian cyber attacks against the U.S.? I think it's likely. Uh, The problem that they're facing is they're experiencing a lot of their own
1: cyber attacks. So the, the issue is the people that would be launching the attacks are currently on the defensive and as long as you can overwhelm their systems and keep them on the defensive, it's much harder for them to go on the offensive. And, and I think that's the that's the biggest thing that is happening with, like, the Group Anonymous and our own, you know, uh, capabilities when you look at at striking hard. And I think it's actually one of the key reasons why yeah, – I don't know if you saw the rumors where Russia was looking to cut off the Internet and you had to have a .ru uh, – um, uh, what you, URL in order to function?
0: Because I think they're looking. Oh, hey Mark, you uh, you cut off. I'll, I'll give you a second to see if you can get it back on. <laughs>
1: on the table and would be the easiest way for them to really strike back.
0: Yeah, no, I did see that that article about the .ru basically closing off their internet. Um, You know, a lot of people read that and said, you know, that's defensive. They want to defend it. But I read the way I interpreted that was that that to me is offensive. They're trying to basically uh, keep, russian uh businesses and websites in kind of a closed loop circuit whereas then they could attack you know the .com the dot, dot .eu uh dot .net uh addresses and so uh, what do you think i mean i, I suspect they're going to do something cuz they've they've i think they were hit with sanctions like you said worse than they dreamed that they would be hit with and i think that they uh are going to hit back at us what do you think I I agree. The the problem is if they don't have a landline
1: to do it, the speed in which they can hit is, is hindered. Uh, so the question will be if if they're bounced if they're pinging off of a satellite if they're pinging off of something makes it easier to defend against and not to say that they won't try which is why I agree with you wholeheartedly where they're looking to to insulate so they want to create a defense by essentially shutting off the ability for public companies to go through and have an artificial kind of barrier but then use that as that propaganda internally, but leave that those lines live in order for the government to strike back. So they're they're trying to create that defense and then, and then push the offense. But, you know things are are have moved so quickly that a lot of these guys can see if they're still connected. So so far they have been unable to launch that offense. But I agree. I think they're positioning themselves that they're going to insulate internally to then be able to strike externally. And I think they're in the process of trying to uh, to do that now. Which. Their success rate I don't know because I don't I don't know anyone that doesn't think it isn't coming. So I think it's just gonna be a matter of timing on, on how long that takes to uh to unfold. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know yeah, I, know yeah. I, know I. I think I think that's that's correct here. And so just kind of a not funny, but it is funny in a way are uh, breaking that just came across my Twitter. It says breaking Russia threatens to abandon American astronaut who is in space station with two Russians. So, I mean, this is just getting uh, silly now. But but, Mark, thank you so much for, for being on. Um, How can my viewers uh, or listeners get, get in contact with you? How can they find out more about you? What's your contact stuff? Sure,
1: I appreciate the time. You can find me on Twitter. I'm um, at Mark Fny. Uh, my my uh, my website is C6CapitalHoldings.com, uh, and then you can find me on email mrosano at C6CapitalHoldings.com.
0: Okay, great. Mark, thank you so much. Uh, also to all my listeners, thank you so much. Uh, those who have listened live and those who are listening to this uh, after it's been recorded, uh, go check out Mark Rossano on Twitter. Uh, he's been on this stuff for, for years before anyone else. He's uh, what I consider an expert in this area of geopolitics, uh, commodities, uh, agriculture, things like that. So go check him out. If you're uh, interested in in, uh, my newsletter, you can go to thewarrenletter.substack.com or check me out on Twitter at Retirement Right. Thank you all so much. Enjoy your weekend, and uh, uh, we'll see you all on Monday. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye, Mark.